have the opportunity this morning to move towards the sermon. Um, we are starting something fresh. And you heard that as, uh, from Rachel that we are going to be going through the Lenten calendar of sorts and, uh, and joining. And, and Lent was something that, that was begun back in the 4th century, that as far as we know. And it was something that the church used to get their hearts right before God as they came into Easter. And uh, when the Reformation came and, uh, and churches moved away from liturgy, we moved away from Lent in the Protestant church. But our great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, this was something precious to them uh, and something that they used to uh, get their hearts right. And we're going to be talking about the parts of Lent that can matter to us and a right way to handle it or, and it's, you'll engage in conversation around it, and I would love your perspective on it. But in that conversation, we have the privilege of a blog that you can go online and see. Uh, you'll see it before and after service next week, but just go online and look for Under Media blog, and you'll see that Dave Norbeck, Bill Erickson, and others have been putting posts up about this very subject, talking about what does Lent mean for us and how can we respond in a healthy fashion. And this is the first sermon of our Lenten service. I want to quote from uh, Dave Norbeck's blog uh, from, two, uh, from February 16th. We hope that this Lenten service will be about walking with Christ to discover the holiness that suffering can bring. We hope it will be about bringing good where evil has been and about bringing love where hate has been, about transforming the base to the beautiful, and bringing light from darkness. We hope it will mean living as Jesus lived for the sake of the sick and suffering, the lost, the poor, the downtrodden, and for the sinner who sees themselves as weak and forsaken. Lent can be the season that teaches us that darkness may overtake us, but we will not, but we will not, overcome, but will not overcome us as we follow Christ and work for his kingdom. Grief and suffering can be replaced by victory and bear witness to what God has done. Our hope is that through this study, we will be invited to walk more closely with Jesus than maybe we ever had, to join him in his suffering, to join him in different seasons of his ministry. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the first aspect of that, which is joining him in his temptation. And it's not a perfect fit for us because Jesus didn't fail. But it's an example for us how not to fail when confronted with temptation. So I hope that this season you'll join us in this journey of walking with Jesus. I'm convinced that if any of us had the opportunity to actually walk with Jesus for those three years, we would be pressed in ways that we can't imagine. We would be confronted with things. We would be loved in ways that we'd never been loved. We'd be encouraged. We'd be struck to the core. My hope is that we get a piece of that this year together as a church as we come into Easter. Our passage for this morning is found in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. 
And if you turn with me to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we're going to read all 11 verses. And we're going to see as we share his temptation that Jesus was tempted regarding daily needs. Jesus was tempted regarding personal glory. And Jesus was tempted regarding, um, sorry, focus of worship. Verses 1 through 11 in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Heavenly Father, your word is life to us. As we hear the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the interactions of Jesus, it is our great delight to be Christian to be disciples of his, and to live lives worthy of the call which you've called us to in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus was tempted regarding daily needs. Now, I want you to know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And in this, we are going to see a pattern that could, a strategy that can cause us to be victorious in temptations. And if I was bold, which I'm not going to be this bold, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you would raise your hands and say, there are temptations that have owned you, that you have not overcome, that, that again and again those temptations continue to win, that you don't seem to be able, you don't seem to have power over these temptations. Today, we will see by walking with Jesus through his temptations that you too can be victorious over all temptations. There are sins that easily beset all of us. Sins that maybe we return to. Maybe you're like me and there are struggles that can be continual and take years to overcome and sometimes feel like you'll never overcome. Today, as we share in the temptation of Christ, we are going to see that we begin to share in the victory of Christ, which is the title of the Easter sermon, by the way sharing in the victory of Christ. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's an interesting verse. There's a lot of theology going in that verse. A lot of head-scratching maybe going on in that verse for you. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was 
following in step with the Spirit, living his life by the power of the Spirit, and after being baptized, after being declared, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased by God, he now is immediately taken up into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. Does God tempt us? No, he does not. You're right. James chapter 1 tells us that God has nothing to do with temptation. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. But here we see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What's going on there? What's the testing? And we're going to look at three kinds of testing this morning. The testing that God does of us, where he refines us and hones us and prepares us. There's a testing by Satan that is temptation to sin and is of evil intent. And there's a testing of us of God, and we'll see that coming up. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We know that if we were to go on in James, that God not only is not, he's not tempted by evil and he has nothing to do with evil, and he tempts no one, but we are tempted by the evil desires in our own hearts and by the evil around us. That's what tempts us. We know that, and further on in that same passage, it says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God's presentation to us is always good. He is always doing good for us. So if the Spirit is being leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, what good is God doing? Let's pause there a moment and just chew on that, and we'll, we'll come back to it. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What is the devil's intent? What is the devil trying to do? Well, devil is the Greek word for that angel that fell from heaven who is powerful in this world for evil. Satan is the Hebrew. It, it means accuser or slanderer. His goal is to tempt us, to get us to fail, and immediately accuse us. And beat us down. He doesn't say, wow, thanks for joining me. I'm so glad you're part of the team. Go team Satan. <laughs> That's not him. Where Jesus and God are drawing us into a relationship with him and his testing is refining us. Satan's testing is to diminish us and destroy us. He doesn't love you. He's not trying to give you what you need or what you want. He's trying to give you what you want in a way that is wrong and destroy you and destroy your relationship with God. Well, Satan is busy in this relationship with Jesus and he has been released and the Spirit of God has even led him into a place where he is going to be tempted by the devil. In verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What's the significance of 40 days and 40 nights? Why is this important? Well, we're going to see that Deuteronomy 6 is central to this passage. And the story of Israel coming out of the wilderness is central to this passage. And Jesus is going into the wilderness just like the Israelites went into the wilderness for 40 years. And when they went in, they too were led to be tempted. They were thirsty. They were hungry. They missed their homes back in Egypt. And they 
were tempted. And where Israel failed again and again, and we'll see that as we go through this, as the Word of God becomes the battleground of this temptation, we're going to see that Israel is central. What's happening in the wilderness with Israel is central, and Jesus, this 40 days and 40 nights, is Him stepping back into the wilderness as the new Israel, as the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He comes out victorious. And in so coming out victorious, we hear the story so that we can arise victorious as well. And we can overcome as well. In Christ, sin has no dominion over us anymore. Our legacy is no longer failure. Our legacy is the success of our Savior who went into the wilderness and came out victorious. Forty days and forty nights. And he was hungry. Can't imagine fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I've never done that. I know some people that have. Um, to say he was hungry is not like me being hungry after the service. Although, it is like that because it's around that the temptation begins. My appetites. Jesus was tempted regarding his daily needs or his daily appetites. In verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now the assumption here of Satan is not questioning if he is the Son of God. He's just been declared 40 days earlier or you know, weeks earlier that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Satan is already admitting, I got it, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. I'm sure he knows more than we know, having been a resident of heaven. Having seen the glory of God in person. And when he goes to Jesus and starts this conversation with him, if you are the Son of God, the Son of God, that term has an Old Testament perspective as well. In Psalm 2-7 and Revelation 19-16, both of those refer to the Son of God and He is the King of kings. He is the heir of heaven. He is the heir of David. He is the heir of the throne. And in Psalms 2, we hear that God looks at the, the workings of the nations and, and they're nothing to Him. They're just... They're pawns, except God loves the people in those nations, in Ukraine, in the United States, in Russia. And because God loves, he is engaged with the... But Jesus has the right and the authority of a king. King of the world, king of the universe, king of all creation. And Satan says, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now that would be a nice trick, and who wouldn't want that? Does Jesus have the right to this? We can see easily where the temptation is. Because Jesus has become man, he knows now what it is to thirst. He knows now what it is to hunger. As God, he didn't have want. He never hungered and he never thirsted. But becoming a man 100% God, 100% man. And when he becomes a man, he takes on the hunger and thirst that we have. Why? 
Why did God hunger and thirst like us? Isn't there a fast track to the cross without pain and suffering? Couldn't he have just said that, okay, I'll sign up for the three hours on the cross, or the six hours, of, I'll, okay, fine, I'll sign up for the whole week, Passion Week. But let's lose the growing up and having pimples and, and going to school and getting picked on by bullies. Let's lose the being thirsty and being hungry and being tired and being annoyed and being frustrated and all of the things that we deal with daily. Do you not imagine that Jesus had frustrations like we do? He did. Do you not know that he suffered like we do? And I would argue even more. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus came near for many reasons. He came near to save. He came near to be the man who was righteous, who would go on the cross and pay for our sins. He came near so he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And when we pray, we have an advocate who understands what we've been through because he's been through it. This isn't academic for Jesus. It's personal for Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. Well, he came, son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Again, where is the temptation here? How is the sin? Couldn't Jesus just make the stones bread? And that seems pretty tame. Is that like written in the Bible that he should never do that? It isn't. What's the sin? What's the temptation? The temptation is life in my own will and not in the will of my Father. Not following the Spirit. It's timing. God will bring bread in God's timing. But think of the ways that we satisfy our appetites in our timing. Whatever they are. For a boyfriend or a girlfriend or for wages or for food. It's sin when we do it not according to God's plan and not in God's timing. We see that the righteous life, the holy life, is one that is set apart to following God. So as we talk about walking with Jesus, Jesus was walking in the Spirit and with his Father. And what that meant was, it wasn't just observing. It wasn't just proximity. It was obedience. Which means if we aspire to walk with Jesus during this Lenten season, it's going to require obedience. Repentance and obedience, actually. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. At this point, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. And Deuteronomy is the sermon that Moses gave right at the end of his ministry, right at the end of his life, right before they went across the Jordan. It's the end of the 40 years. Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. It's telling the next generation that you're now the covenant people going into the promised land. And this book, Deuteronomy, Jesus has running through his head and at, the, at Deuteronomy 6 is the core of the Israelite faith. 
what it means to be an Israelite. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it meant to, me, to be a Jew who was serving God. And so important was this, we were supposed to tell our children about it when they got up, when they went to sleep, talk about it when we were having meals. We should talk about what it means to love God and to follow him. And that's our aspiration is to talk about what it means to love Jesus, follow Jesus with our own hearts and walk with Jesus. And who here as a follower of Jesus doesn't want to walk more closely with Jesus than they ever have? Well, it starts around this issue of temptation. And Jesus quotes Scripture to battle temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word proceeds from the mouth of God. To share in the temptations of Christ is to choose life, to, to know the Scriptures, and to employ the Scriptures in our temptations. Walking with Jesus equals trusting God's plan for my daily wants and needs. To join Jesus in this temptation, this first temptation means, one, we need to know that the Word of God is what truly sustains us when we're tempted. Do you read the Bible like your spiritual life depends on it? Like obedience to Christ depends on it? Imagine Jesus not knowing the word of God. What would have been the argument he would have given? No, 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 this, I know this isn't good for me. Yeah, it is. It's food. What's not good about food? It's bread. Everybody likes bread. They didn't even know about gluten. What's the big deal? Oh, yeah, maybe you're right. And yet he uses the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 says that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Are you any good with your sword? If you want to walk with Jesus, you're going to have to pick up your Bible, study your Bible, memorize your Bible, meditate on it, and know it. And how do you start? You say, well, it's overwhelming. Start with a verse. Start maybe with this verse. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, and the next time you're tempted, quote it and add to it. Jesus was tempted regarding daily needs. Jesus was tempted regarding personal glory. In verses 5 through 7, we see how the devil took him, verse 5, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. All right, now the devil is taking him. Jesus has a very passive perspective in this. There are things happening to him. The Spirit is leading him. Satan is tempting him. It's not like he signed up for a class and this is the syllabus. This is what's happening to him. And now the devil is taking him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. More than likely, this, the highest point in the temple would have been the southeast corner, which would have been hundreds of feet to the Kedron Valley. But why, why is this the temptation? Why here? 
Is this just like a, a, a parlor trick where he's going to jump and the angels will catch me and that'll be really cool? No, this is the center of the place he is going to be rejected. This is the center of Judaism. This is the center where people come to serve God. And this would be a, a big celebration of Jesus, the Son of God. Look at him. The angels, anybody else try it? Anybody else jump hundreds of feet and see if the angels catch you? He took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, took him to this corner, and whether he took him in a vision or took him there personally, I don't know. By this third temptation, we're going to see that it's probably vision where he's seeing pictures of what he could have. But as we imagine in our hearts, you ever been driving your car or sitting in your room and thinking of your glory? Thinking of people praising you. Thinking of how you could sing or how you might play the drums or how you might give a speech where people would applaud. You. Who here doesn't want their kids to say, you're the best parent ever? And what kid doesn't want to hear, you're the best kid I could ever have? And how much would we give to have that? How much would we give, how much would we sacrifice to gain glory and praise from people? What is being asked here is actually quoting Scripture. Satan is quoting Scripture in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So wait a minute. Satan is using Scripture to tempt? Scripture can be used for evil? I would say absolutely. I've seen Scripture used for abuse. I've seen Scripture used to diminish. I've seen Scripture used to control. I've seen Scripture used to put down. And I would argue that in every case, they didn't understand the author of that passage that they were using. Because it was never God's intent to do that. How many times have fathers said, the Scriptures say you have to obey your parents, and if you don't, you're not going to have a long life. It's right there in the Ten Commandments. But don't you know that God followed up with, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't cause them to lose heart. You have to quote the whole thing. You have to understand the heart of the author if Scripture is going to be used effectively. And Satan and others may use Scriptures in a, in a way that would be unbecoming a Christian, unbecoming a follower of Jesus. Don't be surprised by that. But our hope is in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is used like a sword to divide, to cut, to cleanse, and to make holy. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
You shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. He is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Again, this passage that was a sermon that was following that 40 days, 40 years of failure, Jesus is retelling the human story, saying we're going to do it with success. We're going to be victorious. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here we are using that word test again. What does it mean to be tested? What does it mean to be tempted? Does God test us? Absolutely. He tests us to refine us, to hone us for our good. Like silver and gold are tested and refined and purified and made holy. So are we. Meaning God will lead us into difficulties for our good. So that our faith can be put on display and so that his provision can be made manifest in our story so that others may know that he is real and his salvation is for all. But this passage where he says, don't put the Lord to the test, how do we put God to the test in such a way that it would be a command that we don't do it. Well, if you know the story from Deuteronomy 8 that they're talking about, it's that when the Israelites had gone into Massa and they were thirsty and they decided to take matters into their own hands and went and were complaining, were demanding, we need water, we need it now. They were, were not interested in waiting in God's timings, but they, they fought against God's plan and they put the Lord to the test. It's as if they folded their arms and said, yeah, we're going to sin. What are you going to do about it? I, I'm thirsty. I want my way. And I, there's a little bit of an implication here that Jesus thirsted for glory. That he understood that what we all understand, that there's something in us that desires honor and glory but getting it God's way is eternal getting it through sin will never last and will end badly putting God to the test in this case quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 is saying I'm going to challenge God and his plan and do my plan and isn't that what we do when we sin? When we choose to sin, aren't we saying, God, I get it, you're good, every good and perfect gift. I heard Todd say that on Sunday, yeah. But I've got a better plan. I've got a shortcut. I've got a way to get to what I want. And if we're going to walk with Jesus, Jesus would say to you, there's a better way. There's a victorious life that you can have. There is a, I mean, it's no life at all to not walk with Jesus. It's settling for death. Deuteronomy 28. I set before you life and death. Wouldn't you please choose life and not death? So Jesus uses Scripture to battle Satan and battle temptation to share in Jesus' temptations 
is obedience, faith, and being Christ-centered. And walking with Jesus is placing the glory of Christ over and above my personal glory. It means serving Christ and putting him first. Jesus was tempted regarding daily needs and came out victorious. Jesus was tempted regarding personal glory and came out victorious. Jesus was tempted regarding the focus of worship. It says in verse uh, 8 that again the devil took him to a very high high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Satan gives him snapshots. The devil gives Jesus snapshots of what it would look like to be the most powerful person on the earth and to give him all the kingship, all the glory. You know, choose this now. Not waiting the three years of suffering and you don't have to wait. This is... My plan, it's a better plan than God the Father's. We are gonna, we're going to use this plan where I'm going to place you in power and you're not going to be troubled by laws. You can take what you want. You can abuse who you want. You can own who you want. And you can order people around that have been trying to order you around. You can really stick it to the people that have been sticking it to you. Where's the temptation? Well, for any who have been bullied, and I imagine most of us at some time in our lives, unless you were really big as a child, have experienced bullying, who wouldn't want to have one day where they could be the biggest guy in school and go to the bully and put him in his place in front of everybody? The temptation here is you are in a position where you're from Nazareth and being beaten down and people are judging you and yet you need to deliver this news and I'm going to let them hit you and hurt you and I'm going to let them diminish you. And Satan says, hey, let's do a new plan. Let's give you all of the kingdoms. Now, does Satan have that to give? The truth is, in some ways he does. In Daniel 10, 13 we see that Satan has a certain authority. In Job 8, 1 through 3, we see that he has a certain authority to talk to God the Father, to interact with us, to have power over us, to tempt us. Now remember as Christians that he can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to, and God means all for good. So God will take what he means for evil and turn that to good as we are tempted and honed and sharpened and purified. So God has a plan in Satan's plan, but Satan's plan is to destroy and he has a certain power. He is called Prince of the World in John 12, 31 and John 14, 30 and John 16, 11. He is the God of this age according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Small g, God of this age. Meaning he has authority on this planet to stir stuff up, to mess stuff up, to tempt us, to hurt, to harm. There's a spiritual war going on that whether we admit it or not is real and it is crushing people. It is killing people. It's killing families. That's the reality. 
And he comes to Jesus and says, new plan, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And from our positions in the church, we would say, nah, I would never do that. Well, let's take a moment and consider what is worship. Worship is to show a lot of love and adoration for something. Religious believers worship gods and people can worship other people and things too. Worship is an extreme form of love. It is a type of unquestioning devotion. If you worship God, then you love God so much that you don't question him when he tells you what to do. Not question to the point where you're testing him. After reading 15 definitions, this is the definition I came out with. It is extreme adoration, love, or admiration of God, people, or objects. True worship will produce a deep respect that results in obedience. True worship, and people think, that was a great day in worship on Sunday. But if you go out and continue to sin and have no changed life, it was not a great day in worship. Because worship leads to fear of God and leads to obedience. And what we worship is what has our affections and our heart and what we follow. And every person worships something. And everyone is being pulled around by something. When we worship God, it just so happens what he produces in us is life and love and joy and peace. And he gives us the desires of our hearts. He fills us. Worshiping anything less will result in despair. So I worship that car, or my golf game, or my friendships, or my family. I put that first above all else, and God's going to have to take a back seat to it. Well, the very thing that you worship, you'll lose. Do you know that? You can't own it unless God gives it to you. Ultimately, in this temptation, Satan is offering something that he can't give eternally. He can only give temporally, and Jesus will lose what God has already promised him by getting it out of order. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Be gone, Satan. I wouldn't be quick to have a conversation with Satan, but I think it's okay to say, uh, I'm done with this temptation. Get away from me. I'm a child of God, and I worship him. In the power of the Holy Spirit, get away from me. Stop it. I want to win over this temptation. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Why does God care about who we worship? We were created for worship. He wants what's best for us. He is good and does only good for us. And when we as people worship him, the world flourishes, we flourish, our families flourish, our relationships flourish. He gives us the desires of our heart. We wonder, why do I not have the fruit of the Spirit? Well, is God first in your life? 
Or are you coming to God and saying, I want these things where I can do whatever I want, and would you please bless me with the things that you give without being Lord and Savior of my life or Lord and Master of my life? I want my will be done, not your will be done, but then I want the benefits that you afford. And God doesn't do that. Why? Because ultimately, the heart of what we need is to worship God. It's what we were created for. Our peace, our joy, our love is in a right relationship with God and all other relationships come from it. And if we mess up our relationship with God, do not think that you can have great relationships here on earth that will last. They will all disappoint eventually. But God gives us a relationship with him and with each other that's eternal. He gives us the desires of our heart. He's the author of the desires of our heart. And at the very core of our desires is to be in right relationship with him. Just like a child for his whole life will long to be in a right relationship with their father and their mother. And if they don't have that, they will spend the rest of their lives lamenting it more than likely that they did not have that right relationship with their father and mother. It is far greater the need that we have in us to be worshipers of God, our Heavenly Father, our Creator. As we consider the temptations of Christ, <clears throat> walking with Jesus means trusting God's plan for my daily wants and needs. <clears throat> walking with Jesus He's glory of Christ over my personal glory. And walking with Jesus means worship and obey God and have victorious life. And as we enter into the 40 days of Lent, which started last Wednesday, we want to begin with repentance. Because Jesus' story doesn't have repentance in it because he didn't sin, he didn't fail. But all of our stories are stories of failure and sin, aren't they? And aren't all of our stories, even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for decades and decades, the truth be told, I'm more aware of my sins and failures now than I was when I was a young follower of Jesus. In ways where my heart is still suspect and worship the wrong things and obey my appetites and strive for personal glory above all else, I am guilty of those things still. As we come in to walk with Jesus, don't you imagine he would ask us to cleanse ourselves, to repent and turn? Let's begin this season with repentance and turning. There are two Lent blogs. I'm now going to read again from uh, Dave's, and then I'm going to read the prayer that Bill Erickson uh, prayed for an Ash Wednesday prayer, and that prayer will be our closing. But Dr. Norbeck writes, Our hope is that Lent can be a time that allows us to see where we have strayed from Jesus and to be reconciled to God, to refocus, uh, to refocus us to the way and the goal of Christ. Lent is often associated with practices of confession, fasting, reading, and meditating on God's Word, as well as a renewed prayer life. Perhaps we need to repent of the dilly-dallying on the road to God, to repent of the time we have spent playing with dangerous distractions and empty diversions, 
Or perhaps we need to repent of our senseless successes, excesses, and excursions into sin, our breaches of God's justice, our failures of honesty, our estrangement from God, our savoring of excess, our absorbing self-gratifications and our addictions and habits that lead us away from God. May it be a time where we ask the Holy Spirit to confront us with what we have become and prod us to open our hearts to a new and deeper time with God in prayer and his word. As we go to prayer, um, I would hope that you would apply this sermon by looking deep into God's word and asking, what do I have there to be victorious over temptation? And I hope that you would be quick to ask God, what are you displeased with that you'd like me to repent for? Let's pray. Dear Father, I ask you to search my heart this day. May your Holy Spirit convict me of those areas in my life where I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I confess my sins to you. I am reminded that without your mercy and grace, I would be dust. I repent now and ask your forgiveness. As with the psalmist, I ask that you would remove the stain of my guilt, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. As I enter this Lenten season, may I draw near to you, help me in my weakness, and by your spirit, give me strength to overcome the enemy. Amen. Amen.